Figure out what Jerry's up to here. What is this? Sweet Thursday. <laughs> of course. We've never a, heard of this. This is a little bit of a sweet Thursday as we head towards a long weekend for a lot of people, right? Louis Riel Day on Monday. Yes. I know some kids have school off tomorrow. I don't know if that's a public school thing, a citywide or province-wide thing, but I know my kids are off tomorrow, so today is their Friday. So, as Shanalee Vidal calls it, happy pre-Friday. Yes, indeed. So, you, uh, we, we like to have fun on this show, but there's a lot of serious stuff. Obviously, the big story, Florida shooting, the second most deadly shoot, school shooting in the U.S. Uh, after Sandy Hook, and uh, you have crafted uh, some thoughts together here, Greg. Well, it was tough. For me yesterday having school age kids right and uh when i heard of the geography and where this was taking place i couldn't help but think of my friend uh, jason who lives in florida and when i heard Port- parkland i'm like boy oh boy this is uh, i think a little too close to home so i picked up the phone and i gave him a call and i i said jay this sounds like it's your neighborhood he says it's down the street from me right. my son's supposed to be going there in 18 months so you know the world's a small place and these things have, these events have a dramatic effect on so many of us. And of course, you take to Twitter, you put on the TV, and I viewed the video collected from inside one of the classrooms on Twitter. It looked like to be grade uh, eight or grade nine students, teenagers with their hands in the air. My heart absolutely broke. The video goes on to show police officers in full SWAT gear, guns drawn, flashlights on, entering the classroom where these frightened children had huddled together in an effort to save their collective lives. And all I could do was think about the innocence lost. This is a high school that was built for the education of 3,000 children. I think the largest high school in Manitoba holds about 1,800 people. So just imagine the, the size of this campus in Parkland, Florida. This has been described as the safest city in Florida. I've heard it described as the safest city in America. And this school had become a massive crime scene, a giant house of horrors, for lack of better words. And this is a concept which should be beyond our collective comprehension, but it's not. It's become an almost acceptable part of American culture, another school shooting. I don't know if you realize this or not, Brett. It's the eighth shooting to have resulted in death or injury in the United States during the first seven weeks of 2018. School shootings? Yes. We even sanitize what we call it, how we describe it in a headline. Maybe we need to start calling them what they are, mass murders. In yesterday's mass murder, the arrested assailant reportedly pulled the fire alarm in order to ensure as large a number of students as possible would leave their classrooms at once. This is in order, was in order to create a large mass of humanity to unleash his terror upon. 
beyond diabolical. This individual even designed an escape, a plan to survive his cowardly act. Don Lemon of CNN put it this way. Have we forgotten that life is a gift? It's a disgrace that this is still happening after Sandy Hook. Columbine, Virginia Tech, Emanuel AME Church, Pulse nightclub shooting, Las Vegas, the list goes on and on and on. This is who we are right now. But is this really who we want to be? A country where anybody at any time could be shot to death. And then when a bunch of people are killed and lives are shattered, we are sad and maybe angry and then we forget and we move on until the next time with the tragedy remaining in the headlines for even a shorter time than it did before. So just forget politics here. This is about lives, the lives of all Americans. We need to keep guns out of the hands of dangerous people. Everyone agrees with that. People who oppose gun control will say today is not the day to talk about it. And you know what? They are absolutely right. Because the day to talk about it was weeks, months, years, or decades ago. And yes, of course, we also need to make mental health a priority in this country. But guess what? We can do both. We can do both of those things at the same time. If we don't, we have no one to blame but ourselves. This is America, people. Don't forget that. I know that we are better than this. Do you remember what Bill O'Reilly said in October of 2017 following the massacre in Las Vegas? This is what he said about mass shootings. He called it the price of freedom. Wow. Last night, CNN counterterrorism expert Phil Mudd had to excuse himself from an interview with Wolf Blitzer because he was overrun by emotion. We're talking about bump stocks. We're talking about legislation. A child of God is dead. Cannot we acknowledge in this country that we can't, we cannot accept this. I can't do it, Wolf. I'm sorry. We can't do it. Yeah. As uh, hopes and prayers and, and wishes for such filled my Twitter timeline, a similar number of posts demanded action, demanded change. Prayers and hope, as any good business person will tell you, are not strategies. They're not strategies for success, for good outcomes. Something that I assume most Republican politicians and many of their voters can relate to. I can only assume that some group of mathematicians somewhere or group of actuaries has determined that this heartbreaking carnage is an acceptable cost of doing business in America as America as the conversations continue over what to do, the mass murder continues. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has tweeted his condolences to those grieving in Parkland, Florida, and is wishing a full recovery to the injured in yesterday's deadly mass shooting at the local high school. Trudeau says, Canadians have you in our hearts. The Broward County Sheriff says a young gunman donning a gas mask, smoke grenades, and multiple magazines of ammunition opened fire with a semi-automatic weapon and shot nearly three dozen people, killing at least 17. A couple of hours ago on the shift with Drax, heard here overnights on 680 CJOB, Drax spoke with Karen Curtis, who is the news director for News Talk 850 WFTL in nearby Fort Lauderdale. 
I wanted to start just to uh, give our Canadian listeners a bit of an understanding. What type of community is Parkland, Florida? Uh, it's uh, upper middle class. It's very quiet. Uh, this is very shocking that this happened at this school. One of the largest school districts, Broward County, in the country with 280,000 students. This particular school had 3,200 uh, 3, students. So uh, it's uh, right next to a large highway called the Sawgrass Expressway, but usually just a very quiet upper class, uh, upper middle class community. Now, we know that the death toll currently stands at 17. Has that changed at all overnight? No, uh, 12 of those victims have been identified. Uh, one of them was uh, apparently a, a security guard slash coach who actually jumped in front of the shooter to save students. Oh. Uh, five of those uh, individuals, the victims, have not been identified. As of last night, we had an understanding that uh, the bodies were still lying in the school, many of them unidentified. So uh, the crime scene is still very active at this hour. Uh, the last I saw, uh, the uh, number of injured was 20-plus. Uh, Do you have a, a new number, or is it kind of around that? It's around that, actually. You're, you're correct. Uh, it's anywhere from 16 to 20. Mm. Um, they were all transported to local hospitals. Of course, it went out as a mass casualty event where anywhere from 20 to 50 could have been injured. This individual uh, allegedly uh, had a high-powered semi-automatic assault rifle and multiple magazines and uh, wore a gas mask into the school and deployed uh, gas or, uh, smoke bombs, uh, also deployed the fire alarms so that more people would come out into the hallway. A very, very sick situation. Uh, now, Pam Bondi uh, made an announcement in front of the media last night. She mentioned that the, uh, the victims would be helped by the state of Florida. What is the plan with the state of Florida? What are they doing for the victims of this? Well, actually, the president has also offered the full thrust of the federal government to help in this situation. The governor is here. Uh, he's in town. They're going to be holding a news conference at 1030 this morning. I'm sure we'll find out more information about that. There will be a vigil today as well uh, for the victims. But in terms of help, uh, there will be federal and state money available. Uh, Nicholas Cruz uh, is the, uh, the suspect in this, uh, in this shooting. What do we know about this, uh, this young person? Uh, very much a loner. His mother died last year, complications from the flu. His father died when he was four years old. Uh, so he was living with relatives in Pompano Beach and attending another school. He had been expelled from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School for disciplinary reasons and uh, told never to come back on campus with a backpack, whatever that means. And his social media footprint, very disturbing, lots of guns. Uh, it talks that type of thing. Mm. Uh, if you want to just take a peek at that, uh, you'll get a better picture of what this kid was about. Yeah. Uh, so uh, w w let me g give me an understanding. You know, yesterday afternoon at, at 3.15, when, when the uh, sheriff gets the phone call that there's a shooting happening, at what stage did your newsroom know that something was happening? Well, we had a, I had actually gotten an alert from BSO that they were on their way to the school for an active shooter. So it happened right before classes were to be let out. Uh, and we were from the get-go. Right immediately when shots rang out, the uh, teachers got a text from the school that there was an active shooter. So remember, you know, when that happens, it goes on lockdown, but the shooter then uh, pulled the fire alarm. Mm. So that's kind of a mixed message. But once those texts go out, then students have their own phones, and they start texting moms and dads, and, you know, it all gets out on social media and Twitter immediately. Uh, Karen Karen Curtis is the news director at News Talk 850 WFTL in Fort Lauderdale. Karen, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We really do appreciate it.
Thank you, and let's just pray for the victims and the families here in uh, Broward County. Thank you. All right, good luck to you guys down there. Thanks so much. That is Drex of The Shift with Drex. Heard overnights here on 680 CJOB in conversation with News Director for News Talk 850 in Fort Lauderdale at 850 WFTL. Now, members of the Florida Panthers have been expressing their condolences on Twitter. Many of them reside in that neighborhood. Last night, the team played the Vancouver Canucks. A moment of silence was held before the game to honor the victims. Mackling and McGarry, Shanna Levadell, Kelly Moore, Jeff Braun, and the omnipresent behind the glass, Jerry, with you this morning. We're going to have talkie, <laughs> we're going to have talkie <laughs> and have coffee. We're going to have coffee and talk about crosswalk safety. We just heard from Glo- Global News reporter Zara Premji about crosswalk safety. We know that on Tuesday, that eight-year-old little boy was killed after being struck by a vehicle at a pedestrian-controlled crosswalk. And this discussion eventually gets around to this, right, Kelly? The idea of how do we handle a crosswalk as a pedestrian and do it in a safe fashion. Uh, I mentioned victim blaming. That's not what we're trying to do here. We're trying to learn a lesson uh, from from an absolute tragedy. Oh, absolutely. I cannot imagine how those parents uh, must feel right now, and nor do I ever want to. Um, I know with our granddaughters, we are constant, and I know our daughters the same way with them, always. Now, they live out in the country, but when they come to our place, it's a different kettle of fish. And so we're always telling them to check both ways, twice, before they cross the street. And, uh, you know, it's, it's like when you're driving. You're feeling in control, but you don't have any control over what the other person is doing. And so if it means waiting for that extra 15 seconds for uh, for a safe uh, scenario to develop, then that's the best way to handle it. I don't know any other way how to express that. Now, Shanna Lee, you live in a neighborhood off of a, a, one of the busiest streets in Winnipeg. Um, are there any crosswalks in the, the vicinity of where you live? Yeah, I live right, uh, right near Osborne Street. And uh, there's like one crosswalk. There's a Safeway on South Osborne, and there's... I think there's a crosswalk maybe I think I think after it, but now they just added a crosswalk before it. But honestly, it's not enough. They actually need another they need another set of traffic lights because they need drivers to stop because it's so busy. And and it is really difficult to cross. And you know, sometimes Drivers aren't stopping. I find, especially when, um, I'm, like when I'm, I generally don't cross the crosswalks because they're because they don't feel safe. You don't feel safe at the crosswalks. Not those particular crosswalks, just because the street is generally like if it's during rush hour, the street is super busy. I mean, if it's you know during the off time, might be okay. But ge- as a general rule, I don't. I don't really uh, like to use the crosswalk unless I have to. There, I usually will walk to the. To the traffic lights. And, oh, so like to a controlled actual to, intersection. Yeah. Exactly, and cross there. And even then, it's a little dicey. You have to constantly watch you, you know. And and, and as a driver, too, every time I see from a distance, I see that uh, those orange lights go up. I, you know, I immediately start slowing down. It might be like, you know, four or five cars ahead of me, but I don't know what's happening, right? So slow down, go slow, and always look for to make sure that there is a person because, you know, you're, you're going to hit the button and then you have to wait like, you know, 10, 15 seconds at least for the drivers to slow down. So you have to get ready and then the whole crossing. So it does take some time. There used to be a crosswalk, I believe, at Osborne and Wardlaw. 
and there are now a set of traffic lights. And I, the, there are two problems with a crosswalk. One, it's a fairly busy pedestrian corridor, so there is, traffic is often disrupted by the crosswalk. So I think putting in the traffic lights helped because uh, it made it a bit more or less random. But another problem, too, is if you're heading southbound on Osborne, there's kind of a bend there where you come around the corner. Mm-hmm. You might not even realize mm-hmm. that right. uh, you're going to, oh, I need to stop for a crosswalk, whereas the, the traffic lights are a bit more, a bit easier to spot, I think. Because I admit, too, there are times where I'm driving on Cordon, for example, and I look up and I see the yellow lights flashing. And it it happened, It doesn't. it's only happened to me once, but it, uh, one where I, I thought... That's a crosswalk. That means I got to stop. <laughs> I, I think we're not we're not used to seeing those orange lights as well, right? So when you suddenly see them, it's kind of this panic. Like, oh, you know, what do I do? Because you're you're, you're it's, we're not expecting it, right? It's an occasional thing. But uh, it, on most crosswalks, though, are there not you know crosswalk ahead signs? They they seem to have disappeared. Okay. And the other yeah. thing that we used to have was that do not pass. From about 200 meters before, and this this is before I started driving. I think they started, I was on a Twitter feed last night, and somebody said that they started taking those down in around 1978 or so. Is that when they started adding lights? I think it is when they started adding lights. And you used to, there used to be kind of a, a slow down, like a, a pedestrian crosswalk zone like we have right. for schools yeah. right now. And uh, a lot of people wondering, is it time to bring those back? And I know the last time we spoke about this, somebody brought up the fact that in one city, maybe it's Regina, those lights are not amber. They're in fact red. Mm. Maybe they should be red. Jerry, you, you've got uh, a look as though you've got lots to say on this. Well, I just don't understand. I mean, uh, uh a flashing yellow light means caution, and they are big and flashing and bright, and you do see them for from quite a ways away, unless you're, of course, on a bend or something like that. That's just poor placement of a crosswalk, if, as far as I'm concerned, if it's just after a bend. But, I mean, that means look out. What's it say about the drivers here in Winnipeg that Chantilly is afraid to use a crosswalk that has flashing lights on it. I think what some, else do people need? I think some people get complacent because the lights flash for a long time. Yes. And if you don't dawdle, you cross quickly and the lights keep going. Because you you'll come across a crosswalk and the lights will be going and you look around yeah. and there's nobody, there's no pedestrians. Like, well, what was there, phantom lights going on? You but know, look, so. look to, on the, but on you the still sidewalks, look, though, yeah. and you're going to see that that person yeah. has, yeah. But I think yeah. that a lot of times people are like, oh, if, if you don't, you just glance, oh, I don't see anybody, so it's just still going from someone else, and you don't realize there is somebody there. Is any of this, does any of our attitudes towards these as drivers have to do with, gets back to bad infrastructure, bad uh, planning and synchronizations of lights, because we always seem to be trying to hustle to the next light. We always feel as though traffic signals are getting in our way of getting places in Winnipeg. Are we overall frustrated as drivers in the city, and is that part of this mentality that we get? Well, I'm going to come back to one of my favorite subjects, and it gets my blood boiling all the time, and that is accountability. And you know, most of us drive the same route day in and day out. There are those occasions when we might be in a different part of the city we're not familiar with. But for God's sakes, if you know the route that you're driving, then you should be. And, and if you don't make yourself aware of where some of the problem spots are going to be. So I'm sorry. I'm not going to blame the city or anything else uh, uh, for this. This just comes down to driving uh, with, a, with a sense of safety. And I see it every single day. I have to drive from here to Transcona every day. And to Jerry's point, Amber in this city, for not all, 
but for at least more than a few drivers means speed without caution. Well, and four-way stops often mean yield, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, particularly in uh, Transcona, where I lived, and it was, uh, yeah. there was a four-way stop at every intersection. So there it still is. <laughs> yeah, and just basically became a, more like a rolling stop and yes. hope that you didn't get spotted by the cops. There is a text here that says, also with issues of texting and walking or driving, pedestrians should make eye contact with the driver so yes. you know they have seen you. Absolutely. I, Brett, that is a, a really good point, whoever texted that. Uh, that's, that. I know that's one of the things I do. I drive through a lot of school zones on the way home, and I make eye contact with the children, and I wave them ahead so they know that it's safe. Oh. And oh. I, I do that especially as a pedestrian, especially if they don't stop in time, and they like... You know, they kind of stop in the middle of the intersection because they didn't slow down enough, and then they, like, kind of feel bad, and I kind of I make sure I give them a look as I cross. <laughs> <laughs> the stink eye from Chanelie. Uh Yeah, and another thing, too, a lot of crosswalks don't even have the lights. There is a crosswalk uh, if you're on Wellington Crescent right where it splits and becomes yes. Stradbrook. Right. Yes. And yeah. river, it's just that's the, the, the example that I can think of, but it, there is a crosswalk sign, but... If you're a pedestrian walking out, I always just wait until the cars are gone. Yeah. I'll just kind of back off, and then when their cars are gone, then I'll go through because I don't want to risk running out into the street and then having someone not paying attention or even realizing that, oh, that's a crosswalk sign. That means I need to stop. Well, you know, and so much of it has to do with manners, right? I know as a pedestrian, I'll look down the road, and if I'm approaching one of these controlled pedestrian crosswalks, and I can see there's a, a group of cars coming, and then there's nothing for half a mile, I'll kind of slow down, and then I'll wait and press the button so I'm not interrupting that row of traffic, right? But you know what? We're all so self-centric, and this gets us into a, a lot of trouble. Thanks, you guys. Good chat. Patrick Brown, the former leader of the Ontario PC Party, sat down for an exclusive interview with Global News. In it, Brown addresses the allegations of sexual misconduct that led to his resignation. Here's some of what he told Global's chief investigative correspondent, Carolyn Jarvis. Why are you sitting here today speaking with us? Because I want to expose the truth. I want, I want to find out who's behind this. I want to find out why, why this was done, why I was thrown to the wolves, why people would make up uh, stories about me. Um, I want to get to the bottom of this. It's not right. Is this for political reasons, because you want to resurrect your career, or is this personal? It's personal. It, they've, you know, I've dedicated 18 years of my life to public service. I, 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 I was raised um, by a family that cared about treating women properly and with respect. I've got two younger sisters who uh, I adore. I've got a family I adore. They, they maligned. They maligned my name. They maligned everything I stand for. Now, you can watch more of this exclusive interview online at globalnews.ca, but before you turn to the website, Here's another clip. So why all of a sudden someone who was, was a big fan, who was liking comments that I'm a great boss and a great friend and a great leader would do this? I want to know who put her up to this. I want to know who's behind this because this is just horrific. Well, what if she herself finally had the motivation to do it? Part of the Me Too movement is about women finding their voice and finally having the courage to speak vocally about something that they were afraid of stating previously. What if she just found her voice now? That's a legitimate thing. But it's fictitious. It's an absolute, absolute lie. In part two airing tonight, Brown raises questions about who 
was behind the allegations against him. And you can see that again at globalnews.ca or cjob.com. Now, from one story about sexual harassment in politics to another, Manitoba Premier Brian Pallister has commented on the sexual harassment allegations on former MLA Stan Struthers speaking yesterday with the Portage Online News at portageonline.com. Not just as the father of two young women in the workforce, but as a person, as a human being, I am deeply saddened that someone would have to internalize uh, memories of uh, oppression, misbehavior, distrust, whatever word we choose to use for a long, long time before they felt they could bring them forward. That's, that's a sad thing. Uh, we're cognizant that a culture of concealment, which is evidently what was in place for a long time, is not the way to go. And uh, so I'll have more to announce in the next few days on some progress that uh, we're committed to making. One area I must reference specifically that concerns me greatly is this issue of, you know, if anyone wants to work in the civil service, they deserve to be heard. And they deserve to be sure that when they express concerns, that they can, they can trust that they'll be dealt with. And every mother and every father in this province deserves to know their children are going to be working in a safe environment where they're going to be respected and they're going to be heard. That has to happen. And it hasn't been happening and it must happen. Pallister was then asked if this news has made or will make him go to his chief of staff to ask if there have been complaints in his administration. It's one of the things that we're going to be talking about uh, in the not too distant future. Uh, We need to be proactive in disclosure, not conceal things. Barriers have obviously been there between various levels of government, both within the civil service and on the political side, at least from the comments that uh, a number of women have made. Uh, so they, they raised concerns and then they were not taken up. Or if they were, they weren't acted upon. Either way, that's not appropriate. Also, there may be concerns that need to go across between political uh, departments and civil service departments because there's an interaction. It's ongoing, right? So civil servants are meeting with ministers. There was one concern raised by a, a civil servant in respect of that. We can't allow barriers to get in the way of communication. Awareness has to be there and it has to be there in my office. It has to be there in the clerk, uh, clerk's office, the chief civil servant in the province. So we can't allow barriers to exist in the name of what I don't know, protecting the wrong wrongdoing of the perpetrator. I, that's not good. That's bad. It's exceed, exceedingly bad. So we're going to be making some specific announcements around changes that I think will help to make sure that we don't ever see a repeat of these types of situations in the years to come. And he says those changes will be revealed next week. Again, that's Premier Brian Pallister in conversation with the Portage Online News at portageonline.com. Thank you, John Cougar Camp. It's time now for the Small Town Salute. Small Town Salute is brought to you by... South Beach Casino and Resort, where service sets them apart. SouthBeachCasino.ca. We're going to the other side of the of the Great Lake, the inland sea known as Lake Winnipeg. <laughs> Brett McGarry. <laughs> and this weekend, we are heading to the village of Dunatar. And our guest this morning is a counselor in the area, Jim Kotowich's name. Jim, first of all, good morning to you, sir. Good morning, Brett and Greg. How are you? Doing well. Uh, have we said it correctly? Is it Dunatar or Dun Otter? You know, it's the Nodder normally. That's what most people call it. But you know what? We don't care what you call it as long as you enjoy it when you come out. 
<laughs> okay, so Donater. So we're we're jotting that down phonetically. And forgive our ignorance on this, but this is part of the reason why we have this segment, so we can learn about uh, communities in southern Manitoba that we might not be familiar with. And one of the things that you said to us is that you really like the area because it's a wonderful place to explore, play, and just relax. So why don't we start with the explore part of that. Uh, what can, if someone is into exploring, what can one do in Donater? Well, it's a, it's a little bit of an older community. Um, it started around the turn of the century, about 1910, 1920. So we've got a lot of little old buildings here and there. If you're into history, it's, it's great to poke around and see some of the old cottages. And there've been a number of books written about Donater and the cottages. Uh, we got a little museum and, and a, um, uh, uh, an art center. Uh, the museum has a lot of the railway history in it, and the art center is an older building, and we quite often use that for uh, farmers markets and celebrations on long weekends. Uh, there's a lot of walking trails. Uh, we, we concentrate more on biking and walking rather than mechanical um, uh, adventure. We don't really have any quads or or uh, off-road uh, motorcycle trails at all because that's really not what our community is about. We, we like to have more of a laid-back, relaxed, and uh, more of an enjoyable uh, weekend rather than an exciting one ripping up the ground. Um, it, it's just a great place to hang out. I'm really actually reluctant to tell you how wonderful it is because I don't want to share it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if you want to go to a great restaurant, we got a couple of wonderful restaurants. One of them is Julia's Place. Um, uh, it's more of an Eastern European uh, theme. It's it's rather rustic. Uh, pierogies, a lot of other Eastern European foods there. Terrific breakfasts. Um, I can't tell you what her desserts are like because I've never made it that far. Uh, <laughs> they have pretty good portions. Uh, then we have the White Walled Emporium. Um, the White Walled Emporium, uh, they make great burgers and stuff, but they really, really concentrate on making fantastic crepes. And I'm not talking just breakfast, but breakfast crepes are great, but they make dinner crepes with uh, seafood and other, and other delectable goodies. Um, they also make uh, arguably the best pizza in Manitoba. They've got a, um, a brick wood-fired oven, and they make these fantastic pizzas that are just to die for. Uh, so if the beautiful beaches at Donato don't bring you out, if the, um, if the nice walking trails and relaxing atmosphere doesn't bring you out, the food ought to drag you out there. No kidding. Uh, now, I know Matlock very well, and so now that I know I've been calling uh, Donato the wrong thing for probably two and a half decades, is it Ponema that's north of Donato? Yeah, we have three communities. Um, Matlock is the one that's closest to Winnipeg. Um, that's our southern point. In the middle, we have a place called White Wall, which is actually where my cottage is. And then we have Panema, which is our northern area. It's closer to Winnipeg Beach. So uh, we have three little communities that have been bonded together. We just got a text message, by the way, at 204-780-6868 that says, I don't live in Donater, however, can confirm how good the restaurant and pizza is. Amazing. By the way, what was the name of that restaurant, Jim? There's two of them. The one's called the White Walled Emporium. Okay. Uh, that's where the pizza is. And then the other one's Julia's. Okay. That, Julia's is in Matlock. You've probably seen that one when you've gone out to your cottage. Yeah, I, uh, well, I can tell you right now that uh, I wasn't hungry about four minutes ago, and now I'm starving, and uh, suddenly feel this urge to, to drive out to Donater today. <laughs> well, well you know what? that's not a big deal, because we're only, well, worst case scenario, I live in St. Patel, and it takes me one hour to get to my doorstep, from my doorstep. 
Um, I have uh, my neighbor always grinds me a little bit about the fact that it only takes him 45 minutes to get to his cottage. So we can race out there right now and grab breakfast. Oh, boy. <laughs> Jim Cottowich, counselor for Donauder. We're uh, talking about the incredible area of Lake Winnipeg, the, the east side of Lake Winnipeg, south of Winnipeg Beach, and those spectacular piers that that are constructed every summer. I didn't realize that those piers go up and come down every year. Is that all of them or just a handful of them, Jim, that are, are, uh, are treated that way? Every single one of them has to be hand-built. And actually, one of the peer builders is another counselor um, that um, is on the work team. And they're, they're more like craftsmen than, uh, um, than peer builders. They're, they build these fantastic piers. They go out, in some cases, two or 300 feet into the lake. And they're wonderful places to go and just sit and relax and enjoy a sunset or if you really, really uh, adventurous, a sunrise. I've never seen a sunrise there, to be perfectly honest. Uh, but I like the sunsets. Uh, so, Jim, the, uh, sorry to interrupt, Jim. You mentioned that you 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 live in Saint Vitale, uh, but yeah. you work out there. Are you originally from Donauder? No. When we were kids, our parents used to take us out there. We used to they used to rent a cottage out there. And um, a number of years ago, about twelve or thirteen years ago, I I had this yearning to to really part of my youth, you might say. And I wanted to have a cottage out there. And we looked around. We found a really decrepit old place. And my wife and I have been working on it for a number of years. And it's one of the best things I've ever done. You go out there and you relax and you meet wonderful people. And uh, it's a wonderful place to have kids. Uh, there's lots of kids to, uh, to play with if you want to go out there in the summertime. The population explodes to about 2,000 people. There's a great community center there to keep your kids busy. If, uh, if the swimming and the kayaking and stuff isn't good enough, there's all kinds of things to do at the community center. Uh, we have um, uh, a group of people out there that um, uh, belong to the age-friendly group, and they're always working on new trails and planting trees and making things just a little bit nicer in the community. It's a wonderful, vibrant place. And at the same time, it's laid back and relaxed. It's not a uh, place where everything has to be... Um, uh, modern and, and, you know, have the hustle and bustle of the city. It's a place where you can sit back and just breathe the air. Jim, you've uh, you've sold me, and I spent a little bit of time there last summer, uh, kind of like the first time all over again, and it was uh, an incredible experience. Lots of character there. You can really feel like you're, you're at the lake. Uh, we appreciate your time this morning, and uh, let's do this again sometime, Jim. That would be a great pleasure. All right, Jim Cottowich, counselor for Dun Otter. Thank you so much for joining us this morning and telling us about this incredible sounding community and the restaurants, Julia's Restaurant and the White Wold Emporium. Uh, now we got to try both of these places, Greg. Teddy bears and flowers now lie near the spot where an eight year old boy was struck and killed by a passing vehicle on his way to school. The makeshift. Makeshift Memorial sits right next to the crosswalk on St. Anne's Road. Police say the grade three student was using the crosswalk as he was going to school. City Councilor for St. Vital, Brian Mays, wants to see a traffic light there instead of a crosswalk. And he joins us now live on 680 CJOB. Councilor Mays, good morning to you, sir. Good morning. So you're planning to ask council to study this idea? Yeah, I, I haven't said uh, that it has to be a, a traffic light. What I uh, I asked for a review of that back in 2012 at that very location, and uh, 
And the staff didn't recommend the change. We are doing a study of an area just north of there on St. Anne's already. So I'm going to try and get that study broadened to take a look at this issue. A lot of people have made that request that there should be a traffic right there. I don't have the power to unilaterally command that, but I, I would want the staff to to take a look at it and uh, give us their advice. Give us an idea for those that aren't necessarily familiar, maybe go through there once in a while, jog our memories of, of what that landscape is like in, in terms of the stretch of St. Anne's Road from Fermore north to the junction at St. Mary's. How, how many traffic signals are in that stretch? And is this a situation where, where maybe uh, it's too long of a run without some sort of uh, traffic uh, control signal? Yeah, that's a very well phrased question. That's, it is a long run. There is uh, a light uh, at Fermore and St. Anne's. There's another light um, by the entrance uh, near the Curving Club and the Superstore, and then a long stretch up to the lights at St. Anne's and St. Mary's. Um, roughly halfway, there is the pedestrian crosswalk, lighted pedestrian crosswalk where this tragedy occurred. Uh, that leads to a street called Varennes, and Varennes School is is on Varennes. Um, so I, I would think that lighted crosswalk was put in years ago to help make it easier to get to the school. Um, that said, it sounds like there have been three fatal accidents there over the past 35 years. I wasn't aware of the prior two, so it, it is something we should go back and take a look at. I, I, I can't say for sure that a traffic light is the best approach, but uh, we, we really need to look at this given given the history of the location. Councillor Mays, is this particular crosswalk a busy one? I don't know. I mean, that's a fair question. It's certainly right. It leads to a school. It's, there's a McDonald's there. There's a Dairy Queen there. Um, to the credit of the school division, they pay to have um, crossing guards there in the morning. Um, very uh, tragically, that I think the crossing guard had finished their shift and had left. That's my understanding. Still haven't got all the facts. Um, so I, I don't know that it's particularly busy, but obviously there's something happening there that people aren't paying attention. They're distracted. Something's going on, and then we need to take a look at that. Well, and I'm wondering because uh, there, there are media reports that uh, people get honked at at the crosswalk. They're trying to use the crosswalk, and they're getting honked at. So I'm just wondering if maybe people or drivers who frequent the area are just annoyed by the fact that they're having to stop at this thing and and they're so annoyed that they'd rather just drive through it rather than and I'm not suggesting that's what happened in this case but I'm just wondering if you know it's an, it's if it's seen more as an inconvenience rather than something that is designed to keep people safe well it's I mean I would think most drivers would know there's a school near there but maybe not it's not the kind of street where you can put up the 30 kilometer school zone it's it's a major street if you look 30 yards down the street toward the school you'll see the 30 kilometer school zone sign um i i don't know exactly what what's going on there but i had asked for a study january 30th of another stretch of saint anne's um just north of this location um where people raised concerns that they found it difficult to, to get out onto the street. There was so much traffic going up and down St. Anne's. So obviously there's, there's an issue there with a lot more traffic than, say, when I was growing up, a lot more suburban traffic driving downtown and vice versa at, at the end of the day. So we we got to get this study done. 
you know, I had somebody faulting me today saying, I know why, why aren't you, why aren't you just installing it? Why is study? I, I don't have that power. We need, you know, we need our traffic engineers to take a look at it. And obviously there, there's some geography at play here because you have on the, the east side of St. Anne's Road, a large residential community that kind of continues uh, to parallel St. Mary's Road. And then in sort of a narrowing uh, residential community between St. Anne's and St. Mary's. So a lot of the students I imagine come from the east side of St. Anne's Road. Yeah, I think that's uh, a fair assumption there. Varenz is in, is in what's known as the triangle, so it does narrow. So, yeah, you're. it's a French immersion school as well, so the catchment area may be a little bigger than, say, a nearby English school. So um, it's, you know, it, it is a concern. People raised it. I, I, I can't say I've had many, many calls over the years. Certainly one resident raised it in 2012 when we took a look at it, and uh, – We can certainly add it to the study now and see what we can do to enhance safety. All right, Councillor Brian Mays from St. Patel, thank you for joining us this morning on 680 CJOB. Thanks very much. All right. Yeah, and he's right. There's, uh, when it comes to traffic or people uh, having difficulty getting off of St. Anne's, I used to live on a street that ran off of Belleville between uh, St. Anne's and Dakota. And if you wanted to, so if you're going eastbound up Belleville towards St. Anne's and you want to turn left, and there's a bus, the 55, I think, runs that way. And that bus has to sit there sometimes for five minutes because there's no traffic light there. There is a crosswalk. At least there was when I lived there. It's been a long time. I've been a couple of years since I've been there. So Yeah, I maybe. think you're right. But uh, it would take forever to get out because St. Anne's has essentially nonstop traffic during the day. Yeah, so and it comes from hard. all directions as well, right? Yeah. You're busy coming off of Bishop. You're also busy uh, coming southbound onto Bishop. You've got the Home Depot there now and the Boston Pizza Sobeys. You've got a lot of uh, development uh, all along. I mean, this this Brian mainly sounds like he grew up in St. Patel. He's probably seen an awful lot of changes over the years in, in terms of traffic because that St. Anne's now, that's a commuter route all the way from south of the perimeter for some people. One, two, three. I'm Brett McGarry. He's Greg Mackling, and she is Shanalee Vidal. Time for three things with Shanalee, and today it's three things about Flag Day. Hi, Shanalee. Good morning, Brett. Good morning, Greg. And I'm very excited to talk about Flag Day. Well, happy Flag Day to you, SLV. Happy Flag Day. So back on this day in 1965, our country's flag was raised for the first time on Parliament Hill. Then 31 years later in 1996, on February 15th, was declared National Flag Day of Canada. And that was declared by then Prime Minister Jean Chrétien. And in his speech, he said the maple leaf flag pays homage to our geography, reflects the grandeur of our history and represents our national identity. Well, that's on fine display right now during the Olympics, right? We have such a distinctive flag. I think for a simple as it is and two-colored it is a very powerful symbol i don't know if you know anything about geography at all if you see a canadian flag you have to know it's canada it's very distinctive and uh, on the government of canada's website they actually have some fun facts about the flag and uh, i can't remember the term it starts with a v but the people who study flags oh yes uh sheldon yes uh, yes like (laughs) like um on on the big bang theory sheldon cooper is fun with flags uh they note that it's one one of the most attractive flags really yeah they 
didn't cite a source, though. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> now, of course, to moving on, uh, next thing, do's and don'ts. Of course, uh, there is some etiquette when it comes to the flag, and you can see that full do's, list of do's and don'ts on the Government of Canada's website. Now, here's a few do's. You should always fly the Canada flag alone or on its own flagpole or mast. Now, when the flag is raised or lowered or when it is carried past in a parade or review, people should face the flag and men should remove their hats and all should remain silent. That last part is interesting. Yeah, it is. And I didn't know about the removal of the hats either. And you should always replace a faded or torn flag with a new one. When a flag becomes tattered and is no longer in suitable condition, it should be destroyed in a dignified way. And some don'ts. Now, the flag is very distinctive. Um, it's it's a two to one ratio and it must not be modified. That's pretty big. Shouldn't be written on, marked anyway. Don't sew any Anything on it, mm. don't cover it with other objects, and it should never be dipped or lowered to the ground as a means of paying a salute or a compliment to any person or thing. Yeah, I, th- I think we've seen some missteps on that mm-hmm. over the years in terms of marketing and, and recoloring the, the two red side panels on either side of the maple leaf. We see that uh, from time to time. Uh, Vexillologist. That's that's the word. Someone that uh, is a flag enthusiast. (laughs) Yes. So, (laughs) which would be Sheldon Cooper on the Big Bang Theory. Yes. So, are you ready for number three? Uh, With bated breath. With bated breath, and this one is my favorite one because I actually did like a feature story on it for Canada Day uh, last summer here on 680 CGR because we were doing all these wonderful Canadian stories in honor of Canada 150. Right. And so, I'm always happy to remind our listeners about this one. So, you can own one of those flags that flies on Parliament Hill. What do you mean? They change those flags every single day because it's so windy, the flags, uh, are, you know, could get torn. Right. Yeah, and, and it's just um, also just a matter of, of principle, too. So um, there's a flag on the Peace Tower, which is the biggest one, and then the East Block and the West Block. So you can just go to the Public Services and Procurement Canada website, put in your request, one per household. Nice. And I have to warn you, though, it's going to be a long wait. Like uh, the like uh, jet season tickets, the uh, wait or longer? bit longer. So I put in a request for the Peace Tower flags uh, six years ago now. And yeah. at the time I was told my wait would be 35 years. Nice. Oh, nice. <laughs> not, actually, not too bad. Not too bad. I'm actually going to put in a, a request to check on where I am in the line now. Okay. Now, as on the website, as of December 31st, 2017, the wait list for a Peace Tower flag is 89 years <laughs> and 79 years for the other flags. Now, in the summer when I was doing this story, yes. the flag the, the flag uh, wait years were in the 60s. So look at what you created. You did that story and everybody from Winnipeg so got it, on the list. It just jumped. And uh, I spoke with Magna Hovioski, the Director of Strategic Governance and Ministerial Correspondence, and she told me it was definitely worth the wait for many Canadians. When they get this rare piece of history, they're very excited about it. We frequently get photos of Canadians posing with their flag uh, with thank you cards. And so it's a very fulfilling um, fulfilling for our staff to see the um, the joy that Canadians are getting from this treasure. And so a very important thing, though, you put your name on the request. And mm-hmm. this, this is something that happened to me, and I made sure I followed up on this. If you move, you make sure you let them know. And oh. they will acknowledge that, and they will update your information. Because, you know, when your name comes up on the list... How are they going to find you? And then they're going to have to scratch you off and go to the next person. All right. You don't want to miss your turn. No, you don't want to miss your turn.
<laughs> All right. Well, Shanley Vidal, thank you for telling us about Flag Day. I didn't know most of this stuff. No, so. it's fun stuff. I didn't even fun know it was flags. Flag Day until <laughs> yesterday. So I'm a terrible Canadian. Thanks for making me a better Canadian, SLV. Anytime. We appreciate that. Since yesterday afternoon, we've been telling you about that school shooting in Parkland, Florida. Norfolk, 19-year-old with an assault rifle and a troubled past, has been charged this morning with 17 counts of premeditated murder. Television footage showed Nicholas Cruz being escorted by sheriff's deputies from the Broward Sheriff's Headquarters to the county jail in Fort Lauderdale. 17 people were killed yesterday as gunfire erupted at a high school in Parkland just before classes ended in the deadliest U.S. school shooting since the one in Newtown, Connecticut, five years ago. Cruz was captured in a quiet neighborhood three kilometers from that school. Here's a collection of what some of the students had to say yesterday. First ones we heard, I heard were like faint, but then later on they got real, and my friend was like, did you hear that? I was like, yes, I did hear that. And then he told the teacher, and the teacher was like, nah, that can be like gunshots. And then he ran fast, and we're all just standing there thinking it was just a drill, like a normal drill. Later on, when we all realized it was real, we all started running out of the school towards the fences to Westglades. He's just always been a really crazy kid. Like, and I, I heard him. I heard some people say that one day he would have done this, and unfortunately, I think that was today. I was in the classroom, and all I heard was the gunshots. And then when we went outside, and the police cleared us for us to go outside, I see dead, dead bodies on the floor. What was it? So now let's check in for more on this story with Global Nationals Reggie Chikini joining us uh, from where are you exactly now, Reggie, in the United States? I'm in Washington. Jackson Prosco is on his way down to Florida right now. Okay, well, thank you very much uh, for joining us here. So it's yet another uh, gun tragedy, which is going to inevitably lead to fingers being pointed in the city where you are right now, Washington, D.C. Absolutely. I mean, as is the case, every time one of these incidents happens, you have lawmakers on both sides trying to give their spin as to how things should move forward. Some saying we need to offer time. Uh, we need to offer a prayer and support for the victims. Now is not the time to, you know, rewrite gun laws. And on the other side, you'll have people saying, look, we've been talking for years and years now. We've been talking after a number of school shootings and nothing gets done. The time for talking is over. Reggie, it feels as though there's no line too far on this. We saw what happened in Las Vegas in October, and uh, in terms of um, what happened in Connecticut, uh, you know, a lot of people thought that Newtown would be that line too far. Clearly, it wasn't. Is this just now become an acceptable part of a, a of Americana? I, 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 you know, they, it, it very well could be. This is something that people have been saying for years now is that, look, we need to do something. There was one of the mothers of the victims yesterday who said, now is the time to act. But if they didn't act when kindergarten kids were killed in Connecticut, why are they going to do something now? So this is what the mentality is through people. They, they see these events happen across the U.S. and sit there and say, well, is it either going to be my school that's next or is somebody actually going to do something? Now, I see that uh, President Donald Trump is expected to speak on this in just over an hour's time after 10 o'clock our time, 11 o'clock Eastern. And he's been tweeting about this again, uh, or about this this morning. What has he been saying? Well, the president took to Twitter this morning basically to, you know, offer his condolences and to uh, offer, you know, a thought and a prayer to the victims again. But then he made a point of saying that, look, that the suspect, you know, was known for having bad and erratic behavior. And then, quote, neighbors and classmates knew he was a big problem, must always report such instances to authorities. So this is the administration saying this is a, a situation where people should be taking the lead. This is a people problem. This isn't a gun problem. And this is what we're hearing, you know, echoing throughout the administration. Since 9-11, there have been 
signs in place all over major attractions throughout the United States. Reggie, I'm sure you've seen them on subways and in subway stations in New York City is the first place I saw them. See something, say something. It's become a part of the American vernacular for sure. It is, and it's one of those things where, you know, it, it makes sense to tell somebody if you see something, say something, but then you have to remember that the person who does say something, like the president, you know, the president putting a tweet out there saying you have to go to the authorities and talk, you could be that person who goes to the authority that talks, and then you become a potential target. So there's kind of a, there's a one way or the other. Do I say something or do I not say something? And if I don't, what's going to happen? If I do, what's going to happen to me? So this is this goes back to that conversation of talking can do one thing, but ultimately talking may not lead to action. Reggie Giacchini, uh, I'm looking at uh, a picture that somebody has sent us. It uh, looks like a piece of art, and it's, uh, it's a circle, sort of a text circle, and it starts at the top with, it says, mass shooting, and then it points to thoughts and prayers, Facebook debates, everyone forgets, Congress does nothing, crickets chirping, back to mass shooting, and an American flag in the middle. And uh, it's unfortunate at how much this particular piece of art is on the mark. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a wash, rinse, repeat cycle down here. You get a shooting, you get people talking, and then you'll eventually get another shooting again. This is this this may be a bit of a different year, though, because, look, we're heading into an election down here with midterms coming up in November. There is a lot of money that's going to be thrown around during this election, and a lot of money does come from the gun lobbyists and from the NRA. They're the biggest supporters of Republicans, and they give the most money out there. So there could be one. this could be one of those opportunities for people to say, well, look, the NRA and, and gun lobbyist groups are giving hundreds and hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars to these candidates maybe there's a reason that they shouldn't be doing that and you know this could sway an election there's a lot of time you know down the road to think about that but th there are there are a lot of questions to be asked about what do we do going forward reggie there's no question the nra and its lobby and its ability to uh donate to different political candidates has been uh, widely reported and is, 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 is very apparent. But this whole idea of gun control, just give us a little bit of an education with the amount of time that you spend in the United States. Uh, the Second Amendment is something that, that people grip to almost, they grip to the Second Amendment, some people, more than they, they grip on the idea of, of freedom of it itself. Bill O'Reilly quoted as saying that, you know, Las Vegas is the price of freedom to a certain extent. And, and that is the mentality for a lot of people in, in what is a, a gun culture so different from ours. Absolutely. I mean, the Second Amendment down here is kind of taken as scripture. It's kind of written down and Americans say, look, it is my right to carry a gun. It is my right to bear arms and I am going to do that. You can't tell me to not do that. That is how a lot of the country has grown up with a thought process of. I mean, they don't go back and think, look, this was written back, you know, 300 years ago when you were fearing, you know, militias and government militias and England was going to come over. They don't take that into consideration. They take, I have a gun. I'm allowed to have a gun and you can't tell me not to have a gun. That is why it is so hard for legislators to actually do something because you have of the NRA, the strongest lobbyist group in this country, pushing the Second Amendment, saying, do not let anybody take your rights away. Reggie Cicchini, thank you so much for joining us this morning on 680 CJOB. Thursday morning, it's crisp, it's clear. I need a drink. <laughs> <laughs> We're coming up on a uh, long weekend for many of us, and...
You know what? Why not celebrate uh, Louis Riel Day with some locally crafted spirits, Brett McGarry? Capital K Distillery is Manitoba's first and only producer of craft spirits. The company has now won four awards at the Canadian Artisan Spirit Competition. And joining us now is Jesse Hildebrand, who is general manager of Capital K Distillery. Jesse, thanks for joining us today on 680 CJOB. Well, thank you very much for having me. And I wish you congratulations. Sorry, Brett, that's on uh, your run of success here. Well, thank you very much. We really like to celebrate the things that Manitobans are doing on a national and international stage. And uh, before we uh, get into specifics here, you, you know, I mean, if you were a small country participating at the Olympics, you would have done just fine here. A gold medal, <laughs> yeah, two silvers, and a bronze. I mean, uh, you, I mean, you'd be doing just fine. Uh, you'd probably get uh, plenty of Olympic funding. But tell us a little bit about Capital K before we talk about these very uniquely flavored vodkas that have clearly captured uh, the attention of the, the craft distillery world. Absolutely. Well, uh, as mentioned before, Capital K is uh, Manitoba's first and only grain-to-bottle craft distillery. Uh, we use 100% Manitoba wheat in our products. Um, and we source as many ingredients uh, as locally as possible, um, getting uh, product from uh, different companies and uh, you know different family companies uh, here within the city for our different products. Uh, for our different spirits. Now, the w- the capital K itself, how long have you guys been around? Not very long. Yeah, it's really uh, We're under the two-year mark. Under the two-year mark. It's not yeah, something. Since the doors opened, yeah. So, a lot of, so basically, an instant success, pretty much. Oh, well, geez, I wouldn't say that. No? But uh, it's been, uh, it's been the product uh, and the company and everything has been uh, very, very well received. It's uh, the, the amount of support that we get for uh, the company is uh, it's heartwarming. So this idea of craft craft distilleries mm-hmm. is that something that's gaining traction across the country? Is Manitoba late to this party as late as it maybe was on craft beer, or are we ahead of the curve a little bit? Um, we are definitely late to the party. Uh, you know, in other provinces, um, particularly the more heavily populated provinces, uh, the industry is already established. Um, and uh, but each province has their own, you know, set of rules and regulations as to uh, you know the distribution and production, sale of alcohol. So um, we're we're definitely ahead of ahead of the curve. If uh, if there is going to be a, a, a craft spirits boom in Manitoba, as there has been with the uh, breweries, um, so it's kind of nice to be uh, to be ahead of the game that way. Craft beer, uh, my understanding of of the definition of craft beer, at least in sort of basic terms, it's made in smaller samples, mm-hmm. uh, less preservatives or fewer preservatives, and so that means also a lower shelf life. But mm-hmm. it's designed to be, you know, you know, if you buy a six of beer, you're probably going to go through that in a, in a fairly quick fashion. But mm-hmm. with with a bottle of of alcohol, a lot of people can buy a bottle and have it sit in their shelf for a year, uh, maybe even sure. longer. So what's craft? Distillery. What's the what separates the the regular or what a normal bottle might be versus what you have? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, basically, for 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 lack of better terminology or I guess technical definition, um, what we do at Capital K, you know, when we say that we're a craft distillery, is we do everything by hand. Essentially, um, it's 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 handmade. Uh, there's no automation. We're not a big, massive ethanol plant. Um, we're using premium ingredients. We've always had the uh, the uh, the idea that if you start with premium ingredients, you're going to get a premium product. And I mean, to my knowledge, you're not going to get much better wheat, uh, you know, in the world other than coming from Manitoba. So, uh, so that's that's essentially what the 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 craft 
uh, term behind craft distillery comes from. Very similar, yes, to the craft breweries. So you don't make uh, vodka from potatoes. Is that what we you're telling me? We do not make me? vodka from potatoes. There's <laughs> a time and a place to make potato vodka, uh, and it is never in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're looking at you, Russia. Uh, bronze medal went to uh, Tall Grass Espresso Vodka, a yes. very unique relationship and partnership mm-hmm. to create this what I can only imagine is a delicious vodka. Yeah, we uh, partnered with uh, DeLuca's to get their premium espresso beans. Um, uh, you know, for those of you listening closely, uh, the obviously we don't get espresso beans, we don't grow espresso beans or grow coffee beans anywhere here in Manitoba or anywhere near here in Manitoba, but uh, we we get from a, we get our espresso beans from a local company that are actually, ro- they're roasted and packed here in uh, Winnipeg. And uh, yeah, it's a great spirit. It's a great spirit. And then the tall grass dill pickle vodka, which is a silver medalist at the Canadian Artisan Spirit Competition. I tried that in, was it August? Uh, the Winnipeg Beer Festival that was yes. held at uh, the inaugural Winnipeg Beer Festival held at Fort Gibraltar. And you guys had a, a sort of a counter there and I got to try it. Mm-hmm. Very good. And it's kind of an ingenious way because it, it, it allows for a, a quick Caesar to be made, right? You don't even need the pickle component of that. Absolutely. it's uh, It definitely makes... Uh, a good Caesar. It, ma- it makes a great Caesar, uh, to be honest. Um, and it's and it's nice because in a dill pickle juice Caesar, uh, you get a lot of the you know acidity from the and your you know your taste buds can pick up on the acidity in the in the vinegar uh, and the and and the brine of the of the pickle juice. Um, and you, in this one, you're absolutely right. You don't even need that dill pickle juice or even the dill pickle garnish. It's 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 absolutely great by itself. Now, three of four awards that you received at the Canadian Artisan Spirit Competition were vodkas, but you had a gin mm-hmm. slide in there as well, tall grass gin. What's the base grain for gin? Well, uh, the the base ingredient for the gin is actually uh, our vodka base, um, and that's actually how most, most gin is actually made. It, it starts as vodka. Really? And you have to infuse your botanicals. Um, into which which give it that gin flavor, and then it's redistilled uh, so that it comes out clear, and all those flavors of the each and every botanical is kind of unified uh, as to one flavor. Well, okay. there you go. You're teaching me stuff left and right here. Hey, this morning. it's all good. If right you come on. down to the distillery, we'll show you how it's all done. Well, and that gin is uh, priced alongside the uh, likes of Hendrix Gin, uh, which for gin fans I understand is kind of uh, among the cream of the crop. So you might want to next time you go for a bottle of Hendrix. Uh, look to your left and look for capital K. And I got to ask you about this because I've, uh, you know, I'm a fan of rum. Mm-hmm. And I understand you have rum on the way. Rum, uh, as well as uh, straight rye, will uh, hit the shelves in springtime. What are you using to make the rum? You know what? Actually, uh, we 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 are using uh, molasses actually um, to to make the rum because we wanted to keep it as authentic as possible. Um, so that, that product, that, that, that ingredient rather, um, you know, obviously isn't sourced locally, uh, for, for the base. Um, but, uh, you know, everything's distilled and fermented and, and produced here in Manitoba. Um, it's for, uh, uh, for those of you who know about, uh, you know, 
making stuff out of sugar beets. Uh, it's fairly difficult to procure enough sugar beet molasses here in Manitoba to uh, to make a sugar beet molasses rum. Well, that's coming up in the spring as well as uh, a rye as well. You guys are located mm-hmm. at 18, pardon me, 1680 Dublin Avenue, and yes. you say that uh, you people can stop by and have a, a tasting or you have a tap room or anything like that? We absolutely have a, uh, it's called a unique hospitality venue, but essentially, yeah, it's a tap room for a distillery. Uh, yeah, come on by uh, anytime, 9 to 5 during the week. Uh, and usually we're, we're open on the weekends as well on Saturdays. Uh, come on by for a tour and tasting. Uh, we also just launched uh, cocktail classes that run uh, two a month. And uh, so you can come on by and not only see how we uh, make our spirits, but I'll also teach you how to uh, make some cocktails as well. Jesse Hildebrand, General Manager of Capital K Distillery. Congratulations on all the awards you won at the Canadian Artisan Spirit Competition. Thank you very and much. And I'm looking forward to the rum. Absolutely. This is Macklin McGarry on 680 CJOB. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling. The Winnipeg Art Gallery's Inuit Art Centre is set to open in two years. A team of all Inuit, all-female guest curators to create the inaugural exhibitions of the Inuit Art Centre. And this team will be led by curator and academic Dr. Heather Iglo-Liorti, who is also the Concordia University Research Chair in Indigenous Art History and Community Engagement. And she joins us now live in 680 CJOB from Montreal. Dr. Iglo-Liorti, good morning to you. How are you? Doing very well. How are you? Great, thanks. Well, thank you for taking some time to talk about this very exciting venture. I can tell you, as a child, I always got the Guinness Book of World Records. I think I have every volume from 1980 to 1990. And what I was always do is go to the back to the index and find all the Winnipeg-related <laughs> world records. And the one that was always in there without fail was the fact that the Winnipeg Art Gallery had the largest collection of Inuit art anywhere in the world. Is that still the case? Uh, that is still the case, absolutely. So what this particular initiative, uh, in, and it's highlighted that it's not just all Inuit, but it's an all-female team of guest curators. So why, why is that important uh, to highlight? Well, you know, it's not even that we're just an all-Inuit team of curators, but that we actually are from each of the four Arctic regions of Canada. So we, we represent uh, the Inuvialuit region of the Northwest Territories, Nunavut, Nunavik, and Nunatsiavut. And so nothing like that has ever been done before. It's really exciting. So this will obviously bring a tremendous amount of authenticity and, and knowledge in, in creating the displays and determining the setup of the, uh, of the new centre. To tell us what the, what the benefit will be to all of us, I suppose, if I can be selfish for a moment. Yeah, I mean, what's really exciting is that we're going to be representative of all these different regions. We all have expertise and knowledge that we're bringing to this exhibition that uh, we probably haven't seen in Canada before. My colleague Asinayak is a filmmaker, Jade Carpenter is a uh, sculptor and a photographer, and Krista Zawadzki works for the Nunavut government in cultural and heritage, and I'm an art historian, so we bring together a lot of different practices and ideas, but we're also from a lot of uh, specific local places, so we, um, I think that we're going to find artists to be a part of the inaugural exhibitions that you maybe haven't seen in the WAG before, even though it does have the world's largest collection of Inuit art. 
Now, the, the press release says, setting the tone for the WAG's Inuit Arts Centre, this curatorial force will bring into focus Indigenous voices to share their stories nationally and around the world, and it's going to offer a new form for international cultural dialogue. So how is this new exhibit going to uh, do, I guess, what has not yet been done before at the Inuit Arts Centre? Well, what has never been done before, first of all, there is no Inuit Art Center in Canada. This is the very first of its kind. But what has never really been done before is an opportunity to show Inuit art in all of its diversity. So it's going to be the sculpture and the prints and the drawings that everyone loves and knows so well, but it's also going to show us uh, a whole world of Inuit experimental filmmaking, uh, painting, and installation art, photography, things that we maybe don't always associate with Inuit art, but that there are many artists across the country and the circumpolar world uh, that are producing amazing work today. So we want to bring in all media. Uh, we want to include artists from every generation, from emerging right up to elders, and we want to show the diversity, not just from the Arctic in Canada, but around the globe. You know, and I think we all, um, uh, let me rephrase it, I think for a lot of us, uh, the idea of Inuit art uh, starts and ends with with, uh, soapstone carving. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is, that's true. That's what a lot of people think about when they think about Inuit art. But it's also um, tapestries. It's also throat singing. It's also performing arts and drumming. You know, it's, it's not just one media. Inuit work in all the ways that artists across the country work. And we also have a lot of distinct cultural practices and artistic traditions that are um, that were born in the North. And so we're going to try to bring that all to Winnipeg. Now, the St. Louis Art Center, uh, I understand, is going to be uh, one of the biggest exhibition spaces in North America dedicated to Indigenous art. Uh, so that, how big is this place going to be? The new building is, oh, it's huge. The main exhibition space that we're working with alone is over 8,000 square feet. And then there are multiple other places throughout the institution to show art. There's going to be a lot of spaces uh, for communities to be represented, as well as um, contemporary artworks to be shown. And there's going to be a new cafe. We're hoping to expand the gift shop. There's a lot of exciting things that are going to make it uh, a really amazing space. One of the things I'm really excited about is going to be the open vault. In the middle of the gallery, there's going to be a space for, uh, right when you walk in the front door, there's going to be a huge uh, display that will go floor to ceiling through two floors that will show you this, you know, we've got this huge collection of Inuit art at the WAG, and finally you're going to be able to walk in and see it right away. So open storage is, is one of the really exciting things that's going to be happening. And do I understand it correctly that we'll be able to actually see some of this open storage from street level, uh, from outside the art gallery? You won't even necessarily have to go inside to see what uh, some of these uh, precious pieces. Absolutely. They're going to be opening up the whole front of the building so that it'll be a kind of a glass wall. So you can see in and see what's inside from the street level. It's really exciting. All right, Dr. Heather Iglo-Liorti, head curator of the Concordia University Research Chair in Indigenous Art, History and Community Engagement, joining us live on 680 CJOB. She's leading a team uh, to curate the Inuit Art Centre opening in 2020 with the Winnipeg Art Gallery. We're welcoming back to the studio uh, one of our longtime favourite guests, uh, Jamie Hillen, is here with us. And we've been talking about 
cycling and uh, transportation, active transportation networks in the city of Winnipeg with Jamie for, gee whiz, uh, probably since just about day one of our show in the afternoon, right, Brett? Yeah. So it's great to welcome Jamie back to the the studio, Sustainable Transportation Planner with Urban Systems, with their website, urbansystems.ca. And Jamie, thanks for coming by. We appreciate it very much. Good to see you. Well, I noticed on your Twitter timeline uh, the other day that you'd been in Moscow for for five days attending the Winter Cycling Congress. And I'm like, we need to learn a little bit about what Jamie learned in Moscow. So maybe yeah. why don't we start with Moscow itself. It's a gigantic city, the, a, yeah. the, the fair to call it the largest cold weather city in the world. That's yep. a, by a mile. Yeah. Um, How's Winnipeg do compared to Moscow in terms of act of uh, as transportation? I, as I was saying off air, I think it's fair to say the next time I start really complaining about uh, issues in Winnipeg, I just remind me of the time I spent in Moscow because oh, really? it's uh, their metro system is fantastic. Uh, it's uh, uh, moves six to nine million people per day. So wrap your head around that. Let's move in the population of Western Canada pretty much every day. Uh, but beyond that, uh, the sidewalks, you know, it was a week after a snowfall. There was zero plowing or very, very little plowing. As I was telling you, it's either metro or it's roads, and the roads were 16 lanes wide. I mean, they went big, big on them, but yet they still had traffic congestion. Uh, you know, we saw traffic jumps 5 to 10 kilometers long. So as I was saying, I left four hours before my flight to try and get to the airport. It took me over two hours just to get from central Moscow to the closest airport. My goodness. Yeah. And, and uh, my my dad was there in 1986, and you had the roadways just about to yourself back yeah. in those days because yeah. uh, transportation wasn't very dependable on the on the vehicle side. Yeah. So clearly, uh, since the fall of communism, Moscow has become a very progressive city, yeah. but maybe not on all fronts. Not on all fronts. I mean, they, they, they've got the Soviet era the infrastructure, right? So from a planning perspective, it was interesting, too, because it's I, I saw zero uh, detached homes. In the whole five days that we were there, we traveled all over Moscow. It's all apartment blocks or the Soviet-style flats, you know, the three-story, st- three that type. So a very dense city in that way. Um, but uh, and a middle class that's really coming up. There's a lot of restaurants. And we were looking at the prices. You know, they're quite affordable still, but uh, a lot of nice vehicles, a lot of drivers. You'd see in the mornings a lot of guys sitting in the back of their black vehicles reading the newspapers, right? Their drivers in the front. You'd see a lot of cars just sitting parked in parking lots with their drivers sitting on their phones with them running, of course. The smog was, of course, you know, quite pronounced as you were flying off. You could see just the, the dense layer of it because they have so many people driving uh, on a regular basis. And on the, on the cycling front, it was really, it was an interesting case for us because they're just taking sort of their first baby steps towards putting in and, and like other transportation options for people. Um, so they have a small, small, tiny little network sort of in the in the, the old heart near the Red Square in the Kremlin. They have some bike share programs, but that is it. And we literally saw, you know, on our whole time there, maybe 10 people on bikes and they are far braver souls than I because they're riding on the shoulders of 80 kilometer an hour, you know, 12 to 14 lane freeways uh, just because they have to. Um, so, yeah, it, it, Winnipeg, you know, we're, we're, we're moving pretty pretty good, I would say, in that direction. So, uh, yeah, it was an interesting case study for sure. So if that city is a difficult place to ride a bike, yeah. how the heck did the Winter Cycling Congress end yeah. up in Moscow? You know, I, and I, I talked to the organizers, and I think it was really to try and give support to a lot of the advocates there and the people really pushing for alternatives in transportation. And that the, hearing the case stories, I mean, Russia is a really different context, right? A public engagement is not something that they really ascribe to as a philosophy. Uh, if you want a project, sometimes you wake up in the morning and you've got a highway coming in through your front yard and that's just the way that it's done. So I think it was really to give them a shot in the arm and have them learn from some of the European and North American professionals that are doing this type of practice and try and encourage them and say, these are
are some strategies that have been t- and techniques that have been employed. But there's a lot of people that are that are doing you know pushing it on their own and and really trying to say we don't always need to be in vehicles. Uh, not all of us can afford vehicles. There's a large population that just simply can't afford it. So they're using the metro and then they're having to walk long distances and they don't have the other options. So they're really seeing as an equity issue. Um, so that's why I think it was placed there is it's not always good to go to a place that's, that's set up and everything's great and you want to show off all your infrastructure. Sometimes it's important to go to cities where they're really just starting out and try and help them along and show that case. So if we're doing a little bit better, at least on the, on the summer side, I think we could argue that on the winter side, we're doing dreadfully in terms of allowing and, and, and making safe spaces for uh, Winnipeggers who are brave enough to, to cycle in the winter to a point where they're considered absolutely insane for doing it. Yeah, I think that's slowly changing, though. And I think the city is getting better. And I mean, I mean I'm going to speak anecdotally. Uh, like, I, I, I bike through winter just mostly because I'm, I'm cheap and I hate paying for parking. <laughs> you know, it doesn't make sense to me. It's 16 bucks for a day to park downtown. So that's where my office is. So it's a five-kilometer ride. And really, the city and I, I will be complimentary here in the last couple of years has made great strides. I take sort of granite way, river path. Uh, if I have a little bit longer, I'll actually ride uh, on the river trail itself, right? It extends down to uh, Arlington. So that I was definitely bragging about, uh, you know, the Europeans because none of them have uh, a path on the river like we do. So that's a real gem for our city. Um, and I think we've done better. The city in the last couple of years, I've noticed, is plowing a little bit better. It's, I mean, it's a couple of days after, sometimes a week after the roads, but uh, still I'll take it. And they're putting some gravel in. So I think they're cognizant of it and they're making a, a real effort is what I've sort of seen, surprisingly well, you, enough. Well, you mentioned biking on the river. Uh, we just had someone in studio on Tuesday at downtown Peggy talking yeah, about yeah. how they've got uh, a fat bike tour on the river trail on, on Friday. Right. It's actually Friday afternoon. Oh, it's Friday. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's this Friday afternoon. The fat bikes, as they're called, though, those are the ones with the big tires. But yep. that leads into my next question. If you are considering cycling, yep. and let's say you're not maybe a, a fully experienced cycler, but yes. you're somebody who's comfortable enough, should you be using one of these fat bikes in the winter? So fat bikes are great if you don't have clear paths. Like, so I don't have a fat bike myself. I just use a, my regular all-season bike. So it's got, you know, like you're seeing the 700C is what they call it. So it's a couple inches wide. I put studded tires on, so I've got the traction. If the roads are plowed or the pathways are plowed, I'm great. You know, I'm good to go. The only time that uh, there's probably a couple days a year, it's like a couple days a year, do I wish I had a 4 by 4 truck? Absolutely. It's the same with cycling. A couple days a year where I'm like, wow, these real, you know, the paths are really blowing in or we had a snowfall and they're not cleared, then I wish I had a fat bike. For commuting, you do not need a fat bike, though, and I will be very, very clear on that. Are fat bikes fun? Tons of fun, though, right? If you're going to be doing trails and you want to be doing stuff through Cinnamon Park uh, or Cinnamon Forest and have a really good time, they're basically like really fun mountain bikes with that big edge. Um, but do you need them? Not at all. So is that the next frontier then, is to to make Winnipeg more uh, cycling-friendly, more active transportation-friendly type of community for all seasons? Absolutely. I think it goes to the bigger picture, though. I think that we need to embrace the fact that we're a winter city. With climate change, we're going to be one of the rare winter cities in the world. Hopefully, we still have our river trail that comes to to us every year. I think we need to play to our strengths and embrace the fact that we have a solid winter. We have cross-country skiing get people outdoors because otherwise if we're trapped inside all the time, we're all going to lose our minds a little bit, right? And even that time that I spend outside, you know, about an hour a day on my bike, it's just fun. I mean, without being too cheesy about it, it's a great time that I get outside. I get some vitamin D, I get some exercise, um, and it's a good time outside. It's good for my mental health. And I think that we, we just, as a, as a, as a Winnipeg, as a winter city really needs to embrace that. 
So what else did you learn while you're in Russia? I'm just looking at their website here, which yeah. I won't try to repeat because it's just a bunch of <laughs> random numbers and letters. Uh, yes. But uh, it looks like uh, there was all sorts of neat stuff to take in. There was lots of, we got the tour of the Moscow bike infrastructure, which, which I was telling you guys about, which is really cool. The other big thing, which is sort of like a, a big moment that was very, very cool to be part of, was, was a winter bike parade we did on the Sunday. And so we started about uh, four or five kilometers from the Kremlin and Red Square and about 4,000 of us on bikes uh, and all sorts of homemade bikes. And we had penny farthings, which are the big, you know, the big front wheel, right? Like the old styles from the 1800s. We saw a few of those. We saw people in wheelchairs. We saw recumbent bikes. Uh, and we did a 14-kilometer ride through the heart of Moscow, through Red Square and Kremlin and the Moscow River on one side. And so it was it was pretty mind-blowing and pretty awesome to be a part of. Um, that was probably, I would say, the highlight for me. The conference itself, too, is just seeing the passion of all these guys. I mean, I, I like to think uh, like that I'm doing the, you know, fighting the good fight here and, and going uphill, but they've got much bigger mountains to climb than, than I ever do here. I think in North America, at least we're starting and more cities are seeing the recognition of the fact that they want a healthier population. They want to try and give people some transportation alternatives uh, and reduce smog and all those sort of good things and some health benefits. So I think we're seeing that movement uh, in that part, like in Russia and Asia. I think that's just, just starting out. And so that was really what we learned is and tried to give them the tools to be able to push that. Even little things like plowing sidewalks. I know when yeah. I was in Montreal, I was there exactly a year ago this weekend, yeah. and they'd had a big dump of snow, about 50 centimeters of snow throughout the week, and the roads were dicey at best on yeah. the side roads, but the downtown, the sidewalks were all plowed. Yeah. Not immaculately, yeah. but they were definitely plowed because they knew that, and they know that pedestrians bred their butter in Montreal, yep. in uh, old Montreal. It's a big part of... of of what they do, right? You, yep. you have to walk through old Montreal. Yep. And so they make sure that it's walkable. Yeah, and they've built a city that can accommodate people with, that don't have vehicles, right? I mean, the metro in Montreal, it's funny that I was there a year ago too. The Winter Cycling Congress was in Montreal last year too. Um, it, you need to have the sidewalks cleared, you know, and it's safe for people. I think it's, and also we hear this lots in Winnipeg and we've had this conversation too, because you walk to, to work sometimes as well about plowing of routes. It's a, it's a human rights issue for lots of people because they don't have the means, they don't have the means to own a vehicle and they need to get out of their homes. They want to walk to the corner store, right? Or they want to walk to the dentist or their doctor's appointments. And if they don't have those routes plowed for them, then they're in real, real trouble. And that became part of the conversation too. And we've looked at other models. Some cities like Calgary requires homeowners to be responsible for their public pathways. Is that model viable? It's got its own pros and cons, right? I think there's no one flat system, but I think we all need to recognize that this is important. And uh, just before we let you go here, the name of the workshop that you co-hosted yeah. uh, involving local stakeholders in decision-making. Yes. Yeah, we did a public engagement session, basically. So uh, as I said in Russia, <laughs> public engagement is just sort of a, a, a starting out, right, uh, for a lot of them because they're coming from the Soviet-style era where it was non-existent, right? I mean, you just, projects just happen. If they were going to put a highway through their house, they'd come up and knock on the door one day and say, well, you got a week to move, that sort of thing. Um, so we were basically trying to give these folks, uh, we were looking, talking about the IEP2 spectrum, which is what we talk about, just a public participation spectrum about what level do you consult with uh, on projects, what are some techniques that we're doing. So are you going to do the traditional open house at City Hall at 7 p.m. or maybe you go to where the people are? How do you get people to come out and actually engage and participate and have their voices heard? And that's what we were really trying to give these people the tools to do. So yeah, it was very interactive, very fun. We had two groups that were speaking in English and one that was very animated in Russian. So we had the, the live translation going back and forth. And Google Translate, my friends, is an amazing thing. Uh, yeah, an endorsement there? Total endorsement, yeah. <laughs> got us safely around the metro many times because it's all in uh, the Russian language, right? The sort of, and you couldn't really tell. So I just held up your phone. It translates for you. And 
Isn't ah, that figured out where you went. I know. Modern technology. That's wonderful. Hey, yeah. uh, Jamie, thanks for this as always. And uh, uh, we appreciate you being accessible to us, even if uh, our cycling routes aren't always accessible to yeah. all of us. <laughs> That's right. Jamie Holland is a sustainable transportation planner with Urban Systems. Again, their website, urbansystems.ca. Thanks to Behind the Glass Jerry, Chandelier Vidal. I'm Brett McGarry. He's Greg Mackling. Thank you for listening to 680 CJOB.